everyone. Welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me, as always, is my brother-in-law, Alan, and his cousin and my friend, Mona. We are post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. This week, we are going to be continuing our series on biblical interpretation and the question we're going to that's going to be guiding our conversation is how was the bible written over time and for our segment this week we're going to bring back sound charades which is going to be fun but before we get into our conversation we have a very special announcement a new thing that we're going to be doing with Irenacast so I'm going to send it on over to Mona and she's going to tell us exactly what we're doing Hey guys, I'm really excited to announce that we're starting something that I've been hoping to do for a couple of months. Um, it's a book club. Uh, it will be once a month on the second Monday of the month, and we have a sign-up uh, sheet on our Facebook and our website pages. Um, this month, we're reading The Politics of Jesus by Aubrey M. Hendricks. So if you want to participate, it's going to be a video chat format. There'll be all the details online, and we would love to have you. Um, because we're just starting off, we're going to cap it at about 12 people, so sign up when you can, and uh, make sure to order the book and read it before the second Monday in July. So we look forward to meeting you. Yeah, so we'll have all the information on that in our show notes uh, for this episode and on our website. So that's irenacast.com or for the show, irenacast.com slash 64. So this week is part two of our biblical interpretation series, and we're going to be talking about how the Bible was written over time. And we think this is an important issue because it represents some certain ways to interpret the Bible. But also, I think we get this impression because of things like because of phrases like God's word that we we may we, perhaps we get this picture where there's this one person sitting down and they've crafted this this beautiful piece of scripture and then they you know pass it on to the the archivist and then it's pure and pristine and it has always been the way that it is always written and that is not necessarily the case historically it was uh correct to think of For instance, Moses writing the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Pentateuch. And there's things like in Deuteronomy 31.9 where it talks about Moses writing down the law and giving it to the Levitical priests, like Jeff is talking about. (laughs) And it being this pristine process of from God to one person to the book. But uh, those days are kind of gone for a lot of critical scholars. Some people still hold on to that that are in more of conservative or evangelical camps, probably, uh, that believe in inerrancy. But there's there's good reasons to think that the books that we have in the Bible were written by communities, edited by communities of writers, and that what we have is a very human thing. I do believe God speaks through the Bible and that it is God's word, but definitely in a different sort of way than I originally thought of it. So we're going to get into the intricacies of that. Yeah, I think when we talk about Bible for a lot of us, at least at one point in my life, and I think for a lot of people still, when we use the word edited <laughs> and the Bible, yeah. that maybe leave us a little uncomfortable. You know, we're not, and, and we're not, to be clear, and we'll obviously expand on this as we go along in the conversation, but we're not talking about like, you know, the old story of the Thomas Jefferson Bible where, you know, he took his scissors and just cut out all the stuff he didn't like. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. Like these edits represent represent a shift in how the communities begun to began to think about who God was and it it's just like any one of us as we grow we add things to our own narrative that fit 
not just the moment in time that we're in, but the overall arc of where we've gone as a community. So I, I think maybe it maybe, and to, if you guys disagree, uh, jump in. But I feel like that might be a, a healthier way to look at it when we talk about editing. That it's not this like, well, I don't like this. It's not this arbitrary thing. It is a real, you know, move from the community in a lot of ways. Yeah, especially when it comes to like sources. Uh, there's there's two ways to approach this conversation, and they're really technical terms, but they help us understand what's going on. One, on the one hand, we have something called source criticism, which looks at the Bible and thinks of the authors not just as these people receiving words from God, but as people who are taking from sources, different sources that are available to them and compiling them into texts in the Bible. So that would be something called source criticism. On the other hand, there's something called redaction criticism, which is more of the editorial side of things where instead of just preserving sources and combining them, a redactor is somebody who edits the sources, smooths it over, maybe adds some features. Um, they're more likely to add things than take them away. That's a kind of a complicated argument, but um, th- those are the two. Th- they're related topics, but they're not the same thing. So the source and redaction. When it comes to source criticism, I, I mentioned earlier that Moses you know, wrote the first five books of the Bible, but in the late 1800s, early 1900s, people started asking different sorts of questions of the Bible instead of just reading it and thinking, yeah, Moses wrote the law, Moses did this. There is a more critical study of the texts that we do have and some theories were put out, like uh, the famous one in source, different sources would be the GEDP theory, and that was... That there were these, when someone reads the Old Testament, you can see different flavors kind of next to each other. Like in one long piece of text, the word for God would be something. And then in a different kind of text, the word for God would be something different. And so there was this initial idea that maybe there's two different sources that are being put together. You know, what J, because it's called Yahwist, in one, God is called Yahweh. E, another Wait, one, God is called. J- Elohim. Wait, yeah. you're gonna have to explain. Explain the why <laughs> J is Yahweh. Yeah, J in German because this originally comes from the German community, I believe, and uh, J was you know Jehovah in German when it was translated from Hebrew to German. The first letter would be J, as opposed to like the Y that you know we know of. So it's Jehovah still- actually isn't in the Hebrew Bible. That's a conflagrated word, isn't it? It is. Pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we, when we spell <laughs> Yahweh, it's it's not with a J, but because of German and because of this translation and this, all that to say... What does Yahwist mean, though? Yahwist would be um, much of Genesis, parts of Exodus and Numbers, that when it describes God, when you're reading God in the Bible, it's actually using the term Yahweh, right? The The intimate name for God for the Israelite people. Yeah, and just for a clarification, like if you're reading your Bible translation and you notice that Lord or God is all capitalized, that usually means in the original language they're using that name specifically, Yahweh. Yes, and if especially you see, Lord. Mm-hmm. If you see God in, you know, capital G, lowercase O, D, or Lord, whatever, then it's a different Hebrew word. So if it's all capitals, usually in, in English, trend, uh, just as a helpful mm-hmm. guide as we're going through this. And that's because the scribes of the Hebrew Bible thought that um, it was incredibly a holy name to write. So every time they would write the name Yahweh, um, they would go through a cleansing ritual. So it 
there were no vowels in Hebrew in general, but that name uh, YHWH, the Tetragrammatron, was never transposed even by up through the Middle Ages. So we don't actually know that's how it's pronounced, but that's how we think it was pronounced as Yahweh. Anyway, random little fact tied for you. So the Yahwist, <laughs> uh, the Yahwists were considered a scribe, a, 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 um, a school of scribes, right, mm-hmm. Alan? Yeah. So some people put forth the idea that these different communities, the JEDP, those stand for different communities, not just one person, maybe one main author or compiler of sources or one main source, but really some people think it's a a school of scribes, which is most likely the case, that put together this material. And so uh, when you read the word God in other parts, uh, it's actually Elohim. And that comes from an older word, Ale being like the most high God in Canaanite culture, and Elohim being like the word for God for um, large parts of, well, there are some parts of Genesis and uh, other places in the Pentateuch. So just seeing the difference of how we talk about God, and it's a consistent difference for chunks of the text, and that matches with different ideas of what's even happening, people began to wonder, well, maybe this is not just one author, maybe this is a compilation of sources. And so it turns out that question has been applied to all kinds of texts in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament, that maybe these things are sources put together. And that's probably a better way to look at it. The D, uh, just so to round this out, the D would stand for uh, Deuteronomy or the Deuteronomist because it's associated with the book of Deuteronomy. And P would be priestly, which encompasses writings scattered throughout the Pentateuch. And it's dated to a later period, like 500 BC, as opposed to earlier. So that's a lot of info. It is. <laughs> the, the, the vast majority of everything we just said is pointing to the idea that there are schools of scribes, probably. It's a theory, like any other theory. But uh, a lot of the biblical interpreters today say there are probably schools of scribes that kind of had a similar uh, outlook on the Hebrew religion and the cultic practice. We don't mean cult like woo, we mean cult like as in just an ancient understanding of how the religion was practiced. Okay. So there were earlier groups of scribes. And then we think that there were later groups of scribes that came along and kind of they preserved the earlier work, but they also updated or edited or commented or revised the theology or the practice by new kinds of writings. And that's why you can see um, duplicate accounts in some of the biblical stories. They're almost identical, um, but one is probably later and one is earlier. Yeah. And the, the most the most profound thing about that for me is that ancient writers and editors felt comfortable enough to put different accounts of the same thing next to each other. I think if for, for our minds, we think, wow, you know, we, we can't have two different versions of what happened because we have to smooth it out more. But when you read, you know, the Hebrew Bible, it's not smooth. And they were okay with that to some extent. At some point in the Bible's history, people were willing to hold these two, di- these different sources because they were holy in and of themselves, even though they weren't smooth next to each other. Yeah, and I think a common theme that we're running to as we go through the series is the idea of meaning, is that we're so literal about what we think happened and didn't happen, and that that is truth, that our truth, our sense of truth sometimes is based too much on fact and not enough on, you know, what happened and how it's influenced who we are and and being okay with essentially reframing that. I think in this conversation, it's hard to get away from just giving examples because... 
for me personally, it, it didn't make sense to think of the Bible as editors putting sources together or changing stuff until I actually saw what was happening and read with that critical mind and saw examples of it. So I'm refraining right now from just giving examples from the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Well, and and so maybe to play devil's advocate a little bit, some mm. of the some biblical scholars now have said that it's gone too far into this redaction or source criticism theory in that there have been some scholars in the last hundred years that have like taken a, one chapter of the Bible and like chunked it up, like even sentence by sentence or within sentence, like that source is J, that source is D, like word for word. And that some people have said that that's not possible to know. So again, we're working with theories here, but we're trying to understand how this book was assembled over a period of time. And this theory actually explains why there would be, like you said, Alan, duplicate, or like we're talking about duplicate passages side by side um, in a really positive way that these scholars respected each other and they wanted to preserve um, the earlier work. Yeah, the earlier tradition. And I I think there's some truth to that. There are definitely some theories that get out there, but it's hard to deny that at some level there were sources that were used for the Bible. Um, Oh, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) I think my favorite example would be just the the Gospels, the New Testament. You look at Matthew and you look at Luke and Mark, and they share a lot of material. Like I think something like 97% of Mark shows up in Luke and Matthew as well, whereas Luke and Matthew have more original material. And there's lots of good reasons to think why Mark was written first and it was used as a source. And uh, just as one small example, like you have Jesus... Uh, giving his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and a very similar thing in Luke 6. And in one, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's Matthew 5. And another, he says, blessed are you who are poor. And that's Luke. And those two things are actually very different. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. And you can see throughout Luke how the author is really interested in how God takes care of the poor and how Jesus is a good message for the poor. And so it's a question of redaction, of editing, did Luke make this change to poor, or did Matthew make the change to poor in spirit, or did they both use some source and make those decisions? But that that brings up a, a whole new set of meaning. It doesn't have to be like, what's right, what's wrong? It's like, what what is the author doing? Because I do believe this personally, uh, and many Christians believe the spirit is still operating on these levels. Like, the choice to move from one thing to another brings up what the author is intending to do and maybe what God you know, intends for us. So I think those are interesting questions that have lots of ramifications. There, Yeah. And there, uh, there's a whole different set of questions for source and uh, criticism for the New Testament. The JEDP mm-hmm. thing we were talking about earlier, that only applies to the Hebrew Bible. The New Testament uses something called Q-source theory, which means um, in the parallel of all the Gospels, there's a lot of there's some material that's unaccounted for. We don't know where it comes from. And so we've just given it the letter Q to kind of stand in for like some other source, um, possibly from Qumran or possibly from these um, scrolls that we've discovered archaeologically since, but we're not entirely sure. Specifically so would, stuff that Matthew and Luke share that's not mm-hmm. in Mark. So Mark is used that's, mostly yes. in both, but there's another. And, and the, you know what's funny? <laughs> I, uh, I took a test at the end of my bachelor's degree. And one of the things was explain the synoptic problem, right? From a very conservative, very inerrantist perspective. And my answer to that question was, well, there was just the same Holy Spirit in all the authors. So, of course, they came up with the same material, right? 
And then now that I went through seminary, when you sit down and look at a text and there's like 70 words in a row that are the exact same in two different documents, you don't think like, well, just the Holy Spirit inspired both. You start to think like, well, maybe they had the similar source, right? And so, yeah, Matthew let's define a Luke. couple of the words that you use, though, for those of us who aren't familiar. Synoptics sure. just means Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they're really similar. John yes. is pretty different, and John Very probably different. used different sources. So, the synoptics are three out of four Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and then you said the word inerrant, I think, right? So, yeah, maybe in- we should get our I words straight. Sure. Inerrant yeah. is the idea that everything written in the Bible, or, and we talked about this in episode four. Is that right, Jeff? Yeah, episode four. Episode four, we really talk about like, philosophically how do we look at the bible different now than we did before this episode is more about you know specifics but inerrancy would be the idea that everything that was written in the gospels happened so when jesus said blessed are you who are poor that happened at one point and when jesus said blessed are you who are poor in spirit that had to have happened at a different point so it had to have been a different message jesus was giving that an author heard so letting go of those like presuppositions that uh those ideas that the Bible has to be inerrant, like without error or change and everything historically happened. You can start to see how the the editors of the New Testament actually used the material that they had. And I find it significant when I'm looking, reading through Luke or Matthew, I will look up similar material in Mark and see the differences. Because to me, the differences bring as much meaning as what I'm actually reading. Yeah, and the authorship question is really interesting because um, I, I think inerrant people who hold to inerrancy will argue that um, a lot of the biblical passages are written or books are written by eyewitnesses, and uh, a lot of critical scholarship has has debunked that to a large degree. Um, like Luke is a good example, right? Of Luke was a physician and probably was not an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry, but collected mm-hmm. stories of eyewitnesses. Um, so if you're gonna if you're gonna say that okay, maybe the gospel writers were not eyewitnesses but collectors of stories, um, they might have had direct. T- uh, contact with eyewitnesses, um, but you, it kind of starts to break down. Um, you either have to say the Holy Spirit gave these non-eyewitnesses a perfect vision or an account of what happened in Jesus' ministry, or you have to say that they're collecting stories, they're writing what they've heard and what's transmitted orally to them, or and or they're actually intentionally editing the messages that they hear to portray something slightly different. Like Luke is an example. If Luke has an emphasis on the poor, an eyewitness might have told Luke, this is another possibility from what you said, Alan. And an eyewitness might have told Luke that Jesus had blessed the Holy, uh, the poor in spirit, but Luke took it upon himself to edit and just say, blessed are the poor. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Or or, or read the material or yeah, some oral account. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Those questions are, very technical, and a lot of people disagree about them. But I think very fewer and fewer people believe that there's no sharing of material between the writers of the Gospels. So I think gone are the days that these are just eyewitnesses' accounts that have no shared material. These are people who had written stuff or maybe sayings that were compiled in an oral format that used that material when they wrote. And so that's... I think that's the biggest takeaway from the Bible being written over time is that there's communities, there's editors, there are people who are sitting down. And if you are going to hold on to the Bible as the inspired word of God, you have to accept the fact that God operated in that way, right? (laughs) That the human community and the process of editing and putting stuff together is not foreign to some 
expression of God's spirit, but actually something God used. And I'm totally okay saying that, although uh, I was raised to think differently. So Yeah, and you can see that actually across the, the Hebrew Bible, there are fragments of like Psalms, for example, that are much older than the Israel uh, people, like Babylonian, Persian uh, songs that were rewritten in terms of Yahweh or... Um, the Hebrew deity in some format or fashion. Some people think that the deity El um, that kind of became Yahweh was uh, an older um, set of mythologies about a lesser God that slowly turned into a form of monotheism or monolatrism, which I like that word a lot. I try to use it whenever possible. Monolatristic means that you believe in one principal God while you might acknowledge other deities um, as being actually in existence. So when the writers of the Hebrew Bible say something like, you will have no other God yes. before me. They actually believed that other gods existed, like other yes. tribes had other gods. Um, it wasn't until much later in religious history when, no, people believe definitively there literally is only one other God in existence and all the other gods are just either fake or don't exist or are demons or something like, you know, but earlier for a long time in, in Israel, Israelite history, um, Yahweh was their God, but they acknowledged the existence of other supernatural there was a so, pantheon of gods, like many. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and my my favorite example of that is Abraham. When Abraham goes to Jerusalem, the high priest comes out, and it's the high priest of the most high God. Is And you don't say most high God <laughs> if it's the only God, right? Like, that's it's the most high God priest, Ale, that eventually gets associated with the God Yahweh, the God of the mountains, the God of, of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, and I was going to say there have been times, there have been times, there were biblical periods of history where it was actually kind of okay to worship other gods as long as you put Yahweh first. This is where it gets really interesting. And I think it was, um, there was a couple key figures who um, clamped down on that. One of them was Hezekiah and I think Josiah were two Israelite kings where during their reign, all the other, anything else that balked of a... of other deities was completely destroyed. And what they called, they said what happened was the cult was centralized, meaning that like Jerusalem was the only place you could then worship. Everyone had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. But before that, it was kind of okay. And actually there's some lineages of uh, Ashtar Ishtar being represented in the temple as Yahweh's wife. And that's, that was erased historically over time. Um, And then during the time of Jeremiah, you have a period of time where, um, the localized worship of Yahweh was said to all all of a sudden become universal, that all of a sudden Israel was meant to take the worship of Yahweh around the world. And no longer was it just Yahweh is just a local tribal deity, but Yahweh was the deity of the whole universe. And so that was that those things represent theological shifts for where, you know, you have this um, kind of primitive pantheistic God becoming monotheistic, becoming universal, becoming uh, eventually. And some people would say Paul took that to the even next level, saying that uh, Yahweh is even a god for Gentiles, and so it kind of gradually you see this this theo- theological shift in 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 the worship of Yahweh opening up and opening up and opening up to, and now it Christianity. Some people say Christianity. Paul made Judaism brought Judaism for all people, or Christianity tries to make Yahweh for all people. That's controversial. Even reading Paul that way, I realize, but um, you can start to see those shifts at at a basic level. It is. It's impossible to not to deny for kind of anyone that the Bible is not a progressive. They call it a progressive revelation that God shows more of who God is throughout the Bible. So that's that fits with a lot of other theories. Mm-hmm. So let me put on my biblical literist hat. 
and ask you <laughs> if we consider it a progressive group of books, then when do we determine when that progression stopped and what's to stop us from just changing whatever we want now? And again, I don't believe these things, but I'm asking these questions because I feel like for some of us, it might be in the back of our mind. And for some of us, maybe not regular listeners of our show, but these are questions that come up in conversations about this kind of thing. Well, traditionally, uh, in canonicity, can- canonical receptive history, that's what it would be referred to, um, like how this book has been received by people who hold it sacred across time. Um, or these books, you could say Hebrew Bible and the New Testament as being two books of, of two distinct uh, world religions. For Christians, I can't really speak to the Jewish understanding of, of canonicity, but for Christians, the idea was that when the last, I, I believe, when the last eyewitness to Jesus' ministry died, then the sacredness, the, the text, the sacred text was closed or sealed in some way. And so when the early cre- uh, councils were putting the canon together, that's kind of what they went off of. So, yeah, like, well, that's why it actually happened or not, that's what they used as a tool. Yeah, that's that's been debated since, right? So maybe some of the new um, the New Testament right uh, books, like maybe uh, Timothy or Thessalonians, were written like uh, maybe even centuries after. We don't know for sure, but that's what we went off of. But we yeah, we have a list of sorry. Yeah, we have a list. Go ahead. I was just gonna say we have a list. I was just gonna say in two fifty they made the decision as to what they they voted actually voted on what they deemed to be. scripture and what wasn't and so they're they're looking back in history and whether stuff was all written by eyewitnesses or people who were alive during jesus's time or not they assumed that these writings were yeah so the, i mean and there are i don't think there's anyone today that would say that scripture like the canon proper is still being written i think some people would say that the ch- that church history in general is still the writing of acts continued kind of a thing. Um, but I don't think anyone liberal or conservative would argue that the Bible is still open being written actively in the same sense, like as the Bible Bible. So we, we deal with the canon that we've received from the early parts of the Christian church being developed. So just, so just to recap briefly before we continue, uh, source criticism is the JEDP or Q source stuff that we were talking about, where we think we have fragments of texts that were um, either preserved or put alongside other types of texts. We're just kind of looking at where those things came from, whether they're from other biblical writers or if they're from sources that we no longer have or from their other cultural sources that were older or predated Israeli or Christian sources. Uh, that's source criticism. Redaction criticism is setting specifically how authors of the Bible edited other authors uh, and how they redacted. And that's another word for edited um, the other voices. And then we talked about reception history, how the canon has been received after it was written and treated by different communities. Um, and then we have historical criticism, which is how these books generally developed over time and how history has impacted their development. Um, and I think that's the four we've talked about so far, right? I think we've glossed over historical criticism, but we'll go into more depth on historical criticism in the next episode next week for the, for our last section of this series. So the, just two more, I think I'm like chomping at the bit to give a few more examples. <laughs> okay. Of, yeah. Examples of redaction. Are good. Yeah. They're, they're important. I mean, yeah. the, the idea of redaction, I'll talk about redaction first shows up. And I talked about this in episode four, but the end of Mark is most likely a scribal edition. And that would be like 
the editor or the redactor thought that the end of Mark was weird because it ends with the women visiting the tomb, Jesus not being there and not knowing exactly what happened. Um, and so and they were disturbed. Added, yeah, there's <laughs> like a disturbed. disturbing yeah. ending. Yeah. And so the, the best texts that we have, and that's like the Greek papyri that we have that we know is the oldest that, you know, that we've studied doesn't have that ending. And so there's this ending that has a different flavor than the rest of the book. You can make the assumption that it was added. Editors are more likely actually to add things than they are to take it away because, you know, this stuff is considered holy scripture. And so there's this gloss or whatever, this scribal addition that a scribe added it to smooth it over, to gloss it over and make it more palatable for readers or to, you know, draw out meaning or maybe they had a different reason for putting that in. But that has really big consequences for what we think. Like if you think Mark ends with, I think it's what chapter 16 with like most of that, that's the ending of the Mark, you know, there's more faithful, closer witnesses that Mark didn't textual witnesses that Mark didn't end that way. And so like, what is the Bible? (laughs) What is the Bible you have? Those are text criticism, determining what the best, best texts we have in the original languages look like. And there's, very complicated arguments for all of that because there's these fragments of papyri that are discovered all the time and working using logic to work back toward the best um, text is a, is a difficult thing. They, but just real quick, they think the ending of Mark is a different author because it's a really different vocabulary and writing style. Yes. Like there's really significant evidence to, to suggest it's not the same writer. Um, and that's also why we think Mark was an earlier source because it doesn't include the resurrection or the end of the story that some people would say happened. Right. So, um, or like even other authors, biblical authors would say happened. So um, those are the reasons, like what kind of tying all together what we're what we're talking about. Uh, um, so, so you can just close, you, you know, you can just close your ears or close your eyes and think like, I don't want to ask critical questions of the Bible. You're going to miss out on this entire realm of 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 something that has been important to the community forever. I mean, all the way back to Jewish sources and rabbis arguing about which which books say what. Like which ones should be included, which ones are more important. Talking back to the text was an important thing. And I think if for our religious reasons we reject that, we're missing out on what God's actually doing or you know what the spirit's actually doing in the Bible. Um, so that that's an that's a an example of redaction. But my favorite example of source criticism uh, is Genesis 37. And I'm super excited to talk about this. It's a Bible episode, so I get to talk about the Bible over and over. In Genesis uh, 37, uh, Jacob, the youngest brother, or Jacob, has a bunch of kids, and the youngest one is Joseph. So Joseph has his coat of many colors. His brothers hate him, blah, blah, blah. Classic brother story. And uh, he spends his time inside the tents instead of out in the field working. So they hate him for that. He's like the favorite of his parents. They hate him for that. He has a dream where they're all bowing down to him (laughs) and they hate him for that. Right. That's totally understandable. Well, his dad, Jacob sends Joseph to them in the field to check on them. So that's obviously going to make them angry even more. And so they decide let's, uh, (laughs) let's beat up our little brother, throw him into a pit and sell him into slavery. So that he's gone from us forever. And the story in Genesis 37 is goes a little bit differently when you think about it as source texts being put together. So when you break it down, according to sources, there are two different stories here. In one, the brother Reuben is the hero. In another, the brother Judah is the hero. And 
you can see this because it says in one part of the text that Midianite traders came by and picked him up out of the pit and took him down to Egypt and sold him into slavery. And Reuben was going to just throw him into the pit and get him later. And he comes back and his brother's gone. Right. Um, in the other story, Judah throws him into the pit and Judah actually says, let's sell him to Ishmaelite traders. So when Ishmaelite traders come, they get him out of the pit. And later in the text, it says he's sold by Ishmaelites into Egypt. So you have in the text itself, Midianites pulling him out of the te- out of the pit and Ishmaelites selling him to slavery. And the only way to resolve this, there's only two different ways. Either Ishmaelites and Midianites are the same people, and that's what conservatives and people who believe in inerrancy have put forward. Or these are two different stories with heroes, two different heroes, and two different sets of occurrences being put together by an editor. And that's most likely what happened, is that the person was comfortable putting these two sources that were important to them in the same story. And you get that over and over in the Bible. So and unless you think that that the biblical authors stitch together just little details, I'm going to I'm going to throw you a punch everybody. <laughs> I have an I have another example that kind of messed with my head a little bit, so we'll, we'll we'll talk about this afterwards. There is a lot of evidence to suggest that Moses the whole story of Moses is actually the stitching together of many ancient Near Eastern legends. And so for example, the story of Sargon of a kid from Sumeria, not Samaria, Sumeria, uh, goes something like this. My mother, the high priestess, conceived. In secret, she bore me. She set me in a basket of rushes. With bitumen, she sealed my lid. She cast me into the river, which rose over me. And it goes on. The similarities are in this are really stunning. And the, the legend of Sargon is much older than Moses. So it's really possible. Um, and this is a what would be considered part of a gradual emergence theory of the origins of the Israelite people that, uh, you know, there, there is archaeological evidence to suggest that in Egypt, there was a massive slave revolt uh, among and there were traders that came in and out called the Hyperu people, which sounds like Hebrew people. Um, but it's very possible that gradually small tribes banded together and started stitching their legends together. They think uh, some scholars think the entire book of Judges is this exact thing, that these are a bunch of different stories from a bunch of different tribes. And as they came together and started worshiping the same deity, they actually wrote their legends into a single um, narrative thread. So. So that raises a lot of theological problems, right? If Moses didn't actually live, if there was no one to lead the people out of Egypt, if maybe there wasn't a giant story of Exodus as we know it, if there weren't 10 plagues, like how how do we stop this whole thing from unraveling? Well, I mean, for me, it's been really, really cool to look at the significance of what it means for people to come together and stitch their narratives and their cultural lineages together and their their heroes together and their legends together. Um into a single historical story and to start building a culture as one like that, that is kind of miraculous in itself. You know, we can sit and grieve that these figures might not be real as real as we know them. But the fact that we've had whole cultures established on the plausibility of their reality is also really significant and not worth grieving, but really actually I think worth getting excited about, you know, and it's possible that Moses really did live and it's possible that we just attributed, um, 
like Sargon attributes to his life to make him seem more epic and heroic, right? It's possible that there really was a slave leader named Moses, um, but maybe he wasn't thrown into the river. But the fact that the Hebrew Bible writers wrote that he was thrown into the river, it would have actually signaled to listeners of that day, oh, this guy's like Sargon. He's really important. They would have known the story of Sargon. It's not like these biblical writers were trying to be sneaky and just steal other people's culture without them noticing or appropriate the culture without them noticing. And they're just trying to like, you know, make their own thing. It's that the ancient peoples would have known that, for example, Psalms, I think it's 137. I don't know. I'm just throwing numbers out. (laughs) Uh, Some of the (laughs) Psalms, like if you heard these Psalms sung, you would know, oh, that's actually talking about another God and they're singing it here for Yahweh. It's not like they're stealing, you know, it's like they're, they're intentionally taking it and, and putting it into their culture. Right. So appropriating. Yeah. Yeah. It is appropriation, but it's not like, it's not the like appropriation that we think of today is like people wearing Native American headdresses and that's inappropriate. It's like, <laughs> this is how cultures develop. This is how cultures develop and grow in the ancient Near Eastern world when they don't have the internet and they don't, you know, they don't have science. They don't have, uh, all they have is oral history. So they, th- for them to stitch their history together and to solidify their culture as a people and protect that viciously and vigorously, um, especially with a lot of like ancient Near Eastern imperialism and tribes that conquered each other all the time and try to dismantle each other psychologically and culturally, especially in times of exile and times of domination, protecting your cultural history is the most important thing. And that's why these these scrolls were so incredibly guarded. And it was so it's such a loss when things like fires um, wiped out those those legacies and those lineages. And, and this is what we do, right? I mean, we communicate the Bible, we teach the Bible in the very same way that it was written through illustrations that people can relate to that are familiar with to communicate an overall truth. So I, and to me, this is a big revelation as far as moving away from this idea of, well, of course, if this is how the Bible tells story, if this is how the Bible communicates truth, it's very reflective of how we do it. So why is this such, you know, obviously we've talked about this, but why is this such a big deal that it, that it was pieced together or that it was put together? It was a progressive book in a way we should, because the holy we spirit man <laughs> yeah exactly we should say <laughs> I mean, that question why, that why is this people. a big deal yeah mm-hmm. i mean it, it's still disturbing to me right i was raised yeah. with the idea that the holy spirit like literally took people's hands and wrote the book down and it's magic it's magic's not the word they'd use but like really it's a big deal it's miraculous that the holy spirit spoke to people and told them the truth about history capital h you know a stork um, left it on our doorstep right yeah, kind of. Yeah. So I think it does <laughs> but threaten people's ideas mommy of God. And daddy, you know, we're copulated. Intimate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, the people of God copulated with ideas that were around them and used ideas mm. to, you know, inform their their literature. I think, and I wrote a piece about this a while ago. I can't remember what it's called. Maybe we'll put it in the show notes. But I think it's a it's a problem with with literature. I think people. Look at human meaning and literature with such disdain that it's so imperfect and it doesn't carry truth and all sorts of stuff that they turn that um, ambivalence toward it back on the Bible. Like, oh, God can't use ancient literature. God can't use a group of scribes who have edited and glossed and added and subtracted and you know, compile different sources. God can't use that process because it's too mucky. It's too human, you know? And, but and then I think they, that, they use it. <laughs> well, no, they'll, like, they'll, they'll deny, they'll deny that that happened. This yeah. is the thing. We just deny that that happened. But the, 
my what my point is is like I I know this sounds weird, but like some of the most profound truths I have read were in Steinbeck, right? Like there'll be a, a chapter where I'm reading, and it's a fictional book, but there's this profound truth being communicated, and I can recognize the worth of literature when I read that. But then when we look at the Bible, it's like, how come God can't operate on that level of human meaning? Actually, maybe that's all. That there's another question. Maybe that's all there is. Maybe all there really is is this level of human meaning that we're creating. Like you can't really communicate the real world. We can communicate our perspectives, right? Thinking that God only operates in the real physical world and not in this like a a, a risen area of human life is to limit God. I think God operated in all of it, and I think it was imperfect and human and um messy but that's who's to say god didn't use that to communicate truth that's uh that's limiting god it's just what we do it's how we tell story it's it's it was the same back then a scroll they wrote it down and then over centuries it was edited and we're just faster at it now right so you have a movie the director doesn't make all the cuts doesn't make all the choices as far as like it's definitely the overseer and kind of the the one that brought the whole thing to life in general but there's still editors and people who through their influence in there to add to what everyone agreed on was a great story for well, the most part and i have a hard some movies. i can totally understand that's an artistic process for sure and it's an important process and meaning making but i have a hard time with blurring the line between fact and fiction and truth and fiction sure like a lot of people right um so for me it's not especially because when movies when like true quote-unquote true stories get translated into movies a lot of times they like totally gloss or change <laughs> details it's really actually yeah. more common than not to do that so for me it's not super helpful to think about that that way definitely in the storytelling ro- route but if you're going to consider the bible truth like capital t even if you don't believe a lot of it is like historical as we would consider historical today but like an ancient Near Eastern concept of historic historicity um, which relied on legend and, and oral storytelling. Um, for me, it's helpful to understand that the Bible is a cloud of witnesses. Like that's a really profound mm-hmm. image to me that a cloud of witnesses across time and across distance um, that makes up the, the global faith community. Right. And so to, for me to think that these ancient peoples like worked on meticulously worked on these texts and guarded them and developed them over time, that that is to their faith in them, in, in the truth that they possessed. And so even if it's not like, true factually historically true in the way that i would think about it i take their their faith very seriously right and i yes. think that could be said to me about other religions as well um you know people who believe in in islam i take it seriously what uh, people who believe in judaism i take it seriously or paganism i take it seriously that they've encountered something really meaningful to them and so i will at least listen to it and pay attention to it um you know whether i believe their i take on their beliefs also as sacred for myself or true for myself um but i do believe that they every a lot of things in this world like contain shadows of truth or shadows of god absolutely like all truth is god's truth even conservatives will say that you know if it's true then it has that god is present and working in it in some fashion so i, I don't think I, we I have would to take that a step further would right? you yeah i would say the the bible itself i believe is inspired in a special way and i hold it with special reverence over and above other works um i don't think it's immune to other avenues of information like science or other religions i don't think it's um i don't think it's inerrant i don't think it's like perfect i believe it's a, a human work but i see I very much hold to the divinity of Jesus and believe that the Bible is the witness to Jesus that I have, right? The historical witness to Jesus, 
not that we can reconstruct Jesus's life using the gospel perfectly how it was historically, but I think it is, I believe, and I accept that it is a good representation of who Jesus was and of what God was doing in Jesus's life. So I accept it as, I think I had a professor, Craig A. Evans, who once said, uh, if Jesus read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, um, it's like the author is reaching in a box and pulling out different items, right? And constructing the story of Jesus. Jesus would sit down with them and say, you got it. That's exactly right. Like you, you got the point. That's, that's who I was. That's who I am. And I think I take the, the Bible as a faithful witness of a progressive, a very uneven, a stitched together, an encyclopedic version of God's revelation to the world. Um, and that it is important because it does give us the best picture that we have of God, especially in the person of Jesus. And so I think for all of those reasons, I see the Bible as important and um, conveying truth in a very large way. Well, let me clarify what I mean when I use that that movie analogy. I'm not saying that, to me, that doesn't diminish it because I'm trying to differentiate between the fact that just because if you're if you're on Alan's end of the spectrum, just because it is this divine work, it doesn't preclude it from still being put together in normal ways. Yeah. So exactly that's that's what I'm saying. So like we have this way in which we put our stuff together. Now the content is varying degrees, whether it's just a piece of crap or whether it's this divine work. But <laughs> the 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 quality of it doesn't change how it was put together. So the means in which we communicate any truth or any story is the exact same way. And we, we yeah. have these ways to do it. So for me, that being said, for me, if tomorrow they prove that every single thing in the Bible was not even close to historically true, it wouldn't make a difference to me. Because for me, I hold the truth, the capital T truth for me is in what those stories or or retellings of history or somewhere in between were trying to communicate. And to me, that's the most important thing. Yeah, and I wouldn't put it that way. <laughs> Personally, I think Jesus's life is pretty important to well, me. Well, I know. I know you but, wouldn't. You've but, clearly established that, but I'm just saying that's part of me, what you're saying what is, is very true. I mean, part, part of what you're saying is true is that even if you do believe God inspired the Bible and that it is you know a work of God, the human element was not transcended. Does that make sense? Like, the medium is the same. It's still a yes. work of of humanity. Absolutely. That's what I said. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Any story in our in our that we know of, even fiction, it takes on a life of its own and it becomes a thing that walks around and, and it impacts the world, right? And as a professor um, at Harvard, I heard lecture once say that even sacred texts, any text, but especially sacred texts, they they're kind of like clothing. And they um, they take on the shape of the person who puts them on. And I think that's really important. That's a key thing to not miss. Even the biblical writers who are putting on these texts and shaping them. Um, you know, and so I think when we look at the Bible, we can't consider it uh, a piece of clothing that always has the same shape. It's going to take on the characteristics of the person dealing with it and handling it. I don't care if it's a Bible study or a philosopher or a, a theologian or a political leader or the Pope. It doesn't matter. It's all going to take on the characteristics of the person handling it, even you, a layperson sitting at your home reading the Bible for yourself. And so I think it's really important to remember that those contours matter incredibly. Um, 
And so I think it, for me, it kind of, it makes it more interesting to read it that way because I can also consider the way that the book is, the books are being treated alongside their content that we can't completely access. And this is what would come back to what you would consider reader response, understanding of the Bible, that, that those who read it today, um, our lens and everything we bring, all of our presuppositions and our biases and our insights and our knowledge, all of that is like a, it's like a big coffee filter, right? And we almost can't access, we, since we can't access the original world of these texts, we are distant from them by time and geography, most of us. Um, we, we really don't have direct access to that world. So we have to, we always have to take into consideration the reader aspect of how these books are being, how they're being worn, how they're being worn. That is um, a beautiful segue into our next episode about historical uh, criticism <laughs> and reader response criticism. Yeah. The Bible in and out of context. So I think that's that's awesome. That's a good so way listen to next time, what we're gonna do folks. Next week. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let us know what you think. If you have anything to add to this conversation or would like to dig a little bit deeper on some of the stuff that we talk about, you can go to irenacast.com slash 64. And there you'll see all the stuff that we've been talking about. Because again, we really want these episodes to be a resource. So we will do our due diligence in the show notes to, to take you to places of all the things that we've talked about. And speaking of resource, uh, there are a few literary resources. If you're more interested in the source idea and the redaction of the text, and you're thinking about the Hebrew Bible, look up Reading the Pentateuch by John J. McDermott. It's a really good introductory kind of survey of the first five books of the Bible. And if you're a preacher or someone who does Bible studies or is interested in really digging into the text, look up critical commentaries, not just the Bible commentaries you have you know, in your Bible or that you pull off a shelf in a Christian bookstore, but critical commentaries that ask these critical questions about sources and redactions, stuff like Anchor Bible, Word Biblical Commentary, the New in- International Commentary, and many more. And for any general questions, comments, and concerns for the show itself, you can always find the ways to contact us at irenacast.com slash feedback. On the other side of the music, we are bringing back sound charades. All right, so we did this segment for the first time back in episode 47, and how this works was we thought it would be fun, well, let's play charades, but then we realized, oh, we're not a video podcast, so that would make no sense. So we came up with this idea of sound charades, where we have picked a word, and we have to communicate that through our own sound effects that we make with our mouth. So this is, this gets interesting. Um, as we go through, so uh, we've we've picked this website. It's uh, I think it's called like wordgenerator.net or something like that. Mm-hmm. The link will be in the show notes. Where each of us has it has these different categories. So each of us comes up with the word, and then the other people have to guess on what that word is based off of our sound effects. So I think this time we'll do round one, an easy word, and then round two we'll do a moderate word. Sounds good. Yeah, Kay. that sound good. Can I can I go first? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that sounds you're, you're up, good. Mona. Ready? That's funny. All right. Okay. Lasso. <laughs> no. That was Pole good vault. though. It did sound like that. No. Okay. I'll try it again. Swing. Let me see if I can do a better job. 
basketball. Yeah, it was serious? basketball. Oh my! Yes. The, the thump was the dribble, and then she yeah. nothing Shot but net it. on the end part, right? <laughs> nothing but net. Yes. <laughs> or it was the whiff of a air ball. Either one. It was basketball. Yeah. All right. So who is who's next? I can go. Go for it, Alan. Okay. <laughs> You're opening a window. No. Wait, does the swish come first or the err? It's like that's like asking the chicken or the egg kind of thing. Um <laughs> A swing? Swing! Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Look at us. The little creaky sound it makes in the right? playground. Yeah. All right. Your, your inner Woo-hoo. child is just like, I know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> it did. <laughs> Whispered to you. <laughs> I was going to say that, that but just my word basketball. that I was generated was swing. So I was like, no, I guess it makes sense that it would be the <laughs> oh, same one. No. So, Oopsies. Maybe the word generator is Now I got to generate a new one. Dang you, word generator dot net. Okay. <laughs> Some of these... Some of these you don't you're not sure like <laughs> how dirty they're gonna sound when you uh you actually do the sound effects because anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's just a precursor to the sound I'm about to make. <laughs> Great. Great. Ugh. Punch. Uh, was that it? <laughs> punch. Was that it? <laughs> I don't even know how to like make oh man. Um that was all I had. <laughs> I'm saying punch. Is that not it? No, that's not it. But it's sort of close, maybe. Um, Jab. All right. Oh. Stab. <laughs> You're playing football. Yeah, there you go. Your... Football. Football. That was football. it. Football. Oh. You use it. I guess that would have given it away right away, huh? Okay. Are you guys that's ready for mine? That's really funny. Uh, okay. Yeah. Ready? All right. Wait, wait, wait. We're, we're, this is round two, so we're doing moderate. Moderate. Yeah, moderate, yeah. moderate, yeah, okay. moderate difficulty. Here we go. Okay, ready? Fume. Electric car. <laughs> when you re-listen to that, you're going to be like, wow, I know exactly what he's talking about. <laughs> Do it again. <laughs> okay. It's like a dog at the end. <laughs> Electrocute? You're on the right like path. Both mosquito of you. Mosquito thing? Mosquito killer? Jesus, no. That's terrifying. I don't want to get electrocuted by I hear mosquito. What if, what if mosquitoes could taste you? I hear sweet. I what? was thinking of a mosquito killer, you know? I hear sweeping oh. and then electrocution and then a dog growling <laughs> do you want me to do it one more time yes just for me okay okay <laughs> frankenstein <laughs> there frankenstein i was about to say the hulk or something oh my gosh jeff yeah okay i got i got it yeah yes. so the lightning brought it to operating yeah. pulling the lever lightning monster yes jeff we're wow, tracking you today are. That was incredible. <laughs> I'm actually kind of scared to press moderate <laughs> word now. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I the first one that came up. <clears throat> I think I can do this. It's not I think audible. I can do this. You ready? 
All right. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Wind? <laughs> um, laughing wind? Or is the last not part of it? <laughs> can I do like... I can do any sound effect, right? Okay. Even if it's onomatopoeia? Or is that out? You can't say words. Yeah, you can't say words. Like, it has to be sound effects. It's called charades, Yeah, man. but onomatopoeia, they're not actually words. They're right, still here. words, Ready? though. They are words. <laughs> that is a word. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Victory? Uh, do it again. What happened to the trumpet this time? <laughs> yeah, where's the it's trumpet? I want the trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> With bow and arrow, like archery. Uh, no. Um, like a shot put in discus. <laughs> I don't know. Plane. Uh, uh, I don't know. Ooh. I I don't think I have anything. Tree. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. A lasso. A trumpet no. tree. We don't know. We don't know, man. I give up. Wind? It could be literally anything that flies. It's not a tree. It's not a plane. It's a cape. It's Superman. Oh, <laughs> it's cape. It's cape. The word's cape. That's the sound a cape makes, right? Mm. Yeah, no, <laughs> it does, yeah. It flutters. I couldn't think of anything else. Nice. Uh, <laughs> All right, Jeffrey. Okay. Um. Here we go. Dog. <laughs> a puppy. <kitten>? A wine. <laughs> you're you're Harry sort of Henderson's. on the right track. Um, <laughs> Sad. Uh, a, a baby. Needy. <laughs> Close. Wanting. A baby sheep. A baby desiring. lamb. A Hungry. Baby. Uh, God, I have to go to the bathroom. Pleading. Meowing. Uh, yes. Begging. That's it. Um, Beg. Oh, I, oh. Begging. No. <laughs> Got it. You have a dog too. You should know that I one. Know. I know that's that sound is I have to go to the bathroom though. That's not, you know <laughs> begging for food is a little more angry. Well, there's an element of begging. We Please do- put me outside. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Hey, should we try one one of the hard words? Alright, let's yeah, let's do, do let's do another let's go very hard words. Let's just like for very a bonus hard? round, oh let's do gosh. very hard. Like what is okay, the sound a crepe I makes? <laughs> Okay, I got one. Ready? Okay. Ah. <laughs> Spoiled. Uh, Prima donna. <laughs> Whining. Brat. Narcissistic. <laughs> Close. Uh, <laughs> Valley girl. <laughs> uh, whiny. Something like whiny. You're very close. You're very um, close. <laughs> Geeky. <laughs> I I have no idea. Hysterical. It's hysterical. Crazy. <laughs> you need to stop having so much fun. <laughs> the fun police have been called. I'm trying to be a teenager. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to make my voice crack, but I couldn't remember how to do it. <laughs> I've set my dog on barking now because I was laughing too loud. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> All right. All right. Alan, well, get, your turn. <laughs> okay. This is going to be difficult. 
but I think I can do it. It's the very first word that came up on very hard words. Here we go. Okay. All right. Flatline. Heartbeat. No. Breaks. Pulse. Alarm? The Car heck? alarm? No. <laughs> this is going to be very hard. It's not going to be alarm or something like that. Uh, Morse code? Uh, Percussion. How about this? Shuffling? A shuffling cards? Um, it's closer. Yeah. Cards? Paper? <laughs> Shuffle, um, scuffle, dancing. <laughs> I don't know how sort? to do this. This is really difficult. Sort? Oh, what'd you just say? I said wow, sort. You're getting really close. Um, Sorting. File. Very, very close. Yeah. Organize. You guys are so yeah. Yay. Organize. All right. <laughs> okay. I I think I think I got an easy one, which is nice because I wasn't. Okay. Here we go. Little star. Mary had a little lamb. No. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. No. Bedtime song. Uh, it's not a star. No. That tune is like a hum. No. I guess this isn't easy. ABCs. Yes. yes. But what's another ABCs. word for that? I don't know. Alphabet. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah I got it. Mm-hmm. Nice. And we got Jeff to sing on microphone <laughs> that will that will absolutely do it for us this week if you enjoy what you hear and you want to support irenacast you can go to irenacast.com slash support for the many ways to show love to the show to show love to the show that's a lot of shows also if you resonate with our content check out our facebook group post evangelicals we started this group for people like us who want to connect and build community uh you can find the link to that group on our show notes so for this week i'm jeff and i'm, I'm mona thanks for joining the conversation Bye.